You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you that we are not in the dark. We are in the light. You have revealed yourself, your light to us in the person of Jesus And all of scripture bears witness to him. We pray now that you would illumine the reading and preaching of your word by that same spirit, that we would not just hear your word today, but that we would respond to it with all the whole of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated, friends. Uh, Well, we are uh, continuing in this study of one of the great wisdom books in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, We're calling this How to Be Human. Ecclesiastes in the Search for Meaning, because our teacher, the writer of this book, who simply goes by Kohelet, uh, is essentially asking, how is it that we as humans can live good and meaningful lives in a world that is as baffling and broken as the one that we live in? And so today we are getting into the theme of injustice that he brings up quite seriously in chapter 3. So let's hear as um, Emily Park uh, reads to us today, if you open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 3. A reading from Ecclesiastes. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, weakness was there. In the place of justice, weakness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of the human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and all to the dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for a person than to enjoy their work because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Again, I look and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievements spring from one person's envy of of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tell you about a little girl named Kashi. Kashi was only five years old when she was taken from her parents and sold into forced labor to a wealthy family in Kolkata, India. She was confused, she was alone, and she spent the next 10 years in a never-ending cycle of forced labor, um, laundry, 
house cleaning, longing for a childhood like any other girl her age. And instead, Kashi faced frequent verbal and physical emotional abuse that left her feeling worthless and traumatized. When Kashi was 15, things got even worse. At that point, she was then sold a second time, this time into a brothel in the city. And so day after day, Kashi was dressed up and sold to 15 to 20 men a day in a room that was locked from the outside. There are millions of Kashis in the world, friends. An estimated 27.6 million people. That's, that's, That's three New York cities full of people, over 27 million people trafficked Right now, worldwide, 27% of them are little children. As, as millions upon millions upon millions of innocent children and women and men whose lives have been stolen, abused, and destroyed day after day after day. What kind of a world is this? That's the question that Kohelet is asking in our text this morning. It's really heavy, I'm sorry. But that's the question he's asking. He's been on a quest to find meaning. He's tried out everything. He's tried out wisdom and pleasure and work, but he keeps running into the same conclusion that it's all hebel, baffling, perplexing, confusing. The world doesn't make sense. But his question, his question persists. How do we find meaning and hope in a world as broken and baffling as ours? And what we see today, family, is just how truly serious this question is. That this is not just like a a philosophical question. This is not like a a casual exploration of an armchair critic. That, That for many people on the planet, for people like Kashi, this question about finding meaning and hope in an absurd world is a matter of life and death. The, for, for a lot of people in the world, when the world doesn't work the way it's supposed to, for a lot of us, it's, it's, it's inconvenience, but for people like Kashi, it means lives destroyed, futures ruined, their whole lives undercut. And so what meaning is there in the face of such horrible injustice, right? What, what hope is there in a world like ours where there are so many stories like Kashi's? How do we make our, our way in a world with so much evil, so much oppression, so much injustice? That's what we're looking at today. So let's, let's first look at the truth of injustice. You know, one one of the most basic human impulses from the time that we are very young is that life just isn't fair and it's supposed to be. Kids, you know this. Like, what do you what do you feel like when your little brother or your little sister gets a bigger piece of chocolate cake? Or if you can't go to recess because one dumb kid in your class acts out, right? What do you feel in your gut? Like, what do you say? You say, what? It's not. It's not fair. It's not fair. We all feel that way, that the world is supposed to work in a way that is marked by fairness. And, you know, the, 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 the modern word that we use is fair, but it, it really comes from an older English word, which is the word just, that the world is supposed to be just, which is, of course, the root of justice. Uh, that comes from the Latin, justus, which means sort of like well-ordered or fair or upright. All human cultures 
ancient, modern, Western, Eastern, all human cultures have, a, have this innate sense of what is fair and just, and it's kind of rooted in the universal human experience. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, justice is rooted in the belief that God created the world and made it good, and probably the most radical part of the Christian story is that God made human beings different from the animals by making them in his image. Sometimes we call that the imago Dei, that he made human beings to be like himself, and as such, human beings, as distinct from other creatures, carry an innate dignity. And that all human beings, regardless of who they are, should be treated with equality and dignity and given what they deserve as made in the image of God. Now, we take this for granted as um, sort of 21st century Americans, but to be clear, this is not always taken for granted in human history. In fact, Aristotle himself, if you ever read him, um, argues that there are only certain kinds of humans that have dignity and rights, and all human beings are not created equal. Some are better fit for servitude and for slavery, he argued. But the Judeo-Christian tradition introduced a radically new idea into the world that eventually became adopted by Western civilization, and that is that all people have the same rights and dignity before God and that the world should operate, should operate, in a way in which every person, no matter what, is afforded that dignity, okay? That's the way the world is supposed to work. Is that the way the world does work? No, no, of course not. I mean, you can't go through a day without seeing that while the world is supposed to be just, what we have instead is a world of injustice where God's intentions, God's well-ordered intentions for a just world are constantly disregarded and flagrantly ignored by the wickedness and rebellion of human beings. And this is what Kohelet is so upset about. So look at our text. He says this first in verse six of chapter three. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. And a few verses later, he says, again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors and they have no Comforter. There's a couple of things that he's really upset about here. First of all, he, he is upset just about the sheer amount of um, evil and injustice and oppression that he sees. When he looks around at his society, what he sees is that a lot of things don't work the way they're supposed to. And a lot of oppression and injustice happens. He sees the poor taken advantage of by the rich and powerful. He sees the fruit of people's good labor stolen from them. He, he sees crooks and cheats and con men you know, destroying lives, taking advantage of people and getting away with it. So he sees all this and he's upset about it. But the other thing that he's really upset about that nearly puts him over the edge is that the very people and institutions that are meant to protect the vulnerable are taking advantage of them instead. And so he says, look, look what he says in the, in the, in the first verse. He says, in the place actually exactly in the place where justice is supposed to happen, there in that place, what does he see? Wickedness. The oppressed, he says, have no recourse for themselves because the very people who can help them are corrupted. Now, I want you to notice, I really do, I think this is brilliant. The Bible is brilliant. The Bible is so nuanced and sophisticated on so many levels. I want you to notice just how nuanced his observations are about justice and injustice in the world. You know, we live in such a, highly political polarized society that often the right and the left conservatives and progressives 
argue about justice, but they mean completely different things by it, right? So when conservatives often talk about injustice, they see the source of injustice as the actions of bad individuals, right? So reform needs to happen in the human heart, in individuals and families, right? That's often what conservatives argue. Liberals, on the other hand, often argue that the main problem of injustice is in the systems and structures of society. So reform happens through collective structural reform, right? And there's often this like raging debate where no, everybody is talking past each other. Well, look at Kohelet's observations. They defy categorization. Because on the one hand, he sees wicked people perpetrating injustice against the vulnerable. So he sees that this is a personal, individual problem that stems from the evil in the human heart. But on the other hand, he observes that evil doesn't just affect human hearts, it affects the systems and the structures in the institutions that humans inhabit. He says right here, in the place of judgment, actually the courts, the governments, the places that are meant to uphold justice, these institutions themselves have been infected by wickedness. And so for, you know, think of Kashi. Think of our friend Kashi, right? For her, it's not just her enslaver in the brothel. It's not just that wicked man that she's up against. She's actually up against the entire corrupted police force and the local judicial courts who are pocketing money from the traffickers to protect them. You know, if you think about our own society in the many, many years after the, the decade, century after emancipation, African-Americans were not just up against the racism of individuals that they carry in their hearts, they were up against corrupted institutions like the banking and lending and housing industry which blocked them from loans and, and, and often redlined them into unfavorable neighborhoods preventing them from developing general wealth, generational wealth, essentially in cementing the endurance of poverty. Some of you have personally experienced the injustice of our criminal justice system which can at times privilege the wealthy and make it extremely difficult for the vulnerable and the poor to get a fair hearing. And so if you were to ask Kohelet, is injustice a personal problem of individuals? He would say, yes, evil is embedded in the human heart. And then if you were to say, is injustice a social and systemic problem? He would say, yes, of course, evil embeds itself in the institutions and societies that humans create. And so he surveys all of this and he's just totally overwhelmed. You can see, he says in chapter four, verse two, I declared, now this is a heavy verse. This is probably not one that you memorized as a kid in Sunday school. I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive, but better than both is the one who has never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. Now I know this is a lot, but what he's saying is when I take in all of this, when I take in the sheer scale of overwhelming injustice in the world and how oppression seems unstoppable and the oppressors keep oppressing. I am so overwhelmed that I don't even want to be here anymore. I don't even want to be alive. And that may sound extreme to you, but I bet that's where Kashi thinks sometimes. It may be that we are, we are so insulated from the sheer scale of incalculable suffering and evil and oppression in the world that if you actually, if we, if God suddenly, suddenly like helped us to see everything that was happening in the world, the sheer scale of suffering and oppression, I bet we would feel this way too. 
I have a good friend from seminary who worked for about 15 years for International Justice Mission that works to prevent human trafficking around the world. And she was a caseworker. And she would, you know, she would look at and deal with like, you know, 10, 20, 30, sometimes 40 cases a day. And she said sometimes she would just look at these things and she would just get so overwhelmed that she couldn't even get out of bed. She just couldn't take it in. And actually, you know, there's something holy about that. There really is. Because God wants us to see. Over and over again, he says in the scripture, he wants us to see the vulnerable, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the poor, the oppressed. He wants us to see them, for us to be for them. And, and for us, it's so easy to turn a blind eye to this. We can arrange our lives in such a way that insulate us from the, the horror of it. We can curate our, 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 our news feeds so that the only injustice we ever see is a quick headline or a hot take on social media. But Kohelet insists, no, open your eyes. See the world. As it actually is, not, not as you wish it would be, not Legoland, not Barbie land, but see the world as it actually is. Have the courage to face these horrible realities. May we never be so insulated by our wealth and privilege that we are not, at least some of the time, distressed and even overwhelmed by just the sheer scale of evil and suffering in the world. I mean, honestly, how could you not sometimes in this world? So what's the hope here? What's the hope? Is there any hope in the face of this overwhelming injustice? Well, look at verse 17. He says, um, I said to myself, God will bring judgment into judgment, both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Kohelet is a faithful Israelite, and as such, he believes that God is the judge. He's the judge of the earth, and that a day of judgment is coming when God will bring his judgment to the earth in which he will destroy and judge wickedness and exalt righteousness. The Old Testament says so much about this. Again and again, we hear that while it seems like the cruelty and oppression and human sin goes unpunished, that a day is coming when God will hold every person to account, that he sees every act, every act of wickedness, and that a day of reckoning is coming. And Christians actually believe this too. This, this is actually reaffirmed in the New Testament and in the Apostles' Creed that we're gonna say this morning, we say this, we say, I believe that he shall come again to what? To judge both the living and the dead. Now, you might not like this idea. I mean, this, this, this idea, especially to modern listeners, this idea of a judging God or a day of judgment sounds maybe a little pre-modern or offensive or pugnant. It doesn't square with our idea of a God of love you know, a God, of, a God of love and kindness. But just think about this. Imagine like a parent just standing there with his hands in his pocket, watching as over there his kid is bullied or beaten or abused by a stranger. Would you say that that parent is a good parent? A loving parent? Of course not. You would say that's a wicked parent. Because the parent should be moving out in anger to protect the child against the abuser. And so, and so God's anger is driven by his love, right? His great love for the human race, his, his great hatred of what abuses and harms. God promises to one day bring judgment because he cares so deeply about us and about our world. Miroslav Volf was a Croatian pastor and theologian who lived through the Balkan War and the genocide in the 80s and 90s when he saw literally like neighbor murdering neighbor. 
And he once wrote this in his amazing book, Exclusion and Embrace. He writes, in a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea of a God who refuses to judge will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. So if you don't believe in a God who will one day judge, you believe in a small God, an apathetic God, an unloving God, a God who doesn't move in angry love to protect those that he loves. God is a God of judgment because God is a God of love. So that's what Kohelet believes, at least in his head. But while he believes this, what he continues to see out in the world is terrible injustice that God seems to do nothing about. And so right in the same breath, right after he affirms his belief in a God of justice, he says this, surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same fate, uh, all have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. This is one of those verses you should not build a theology on. This is not about your pets and where they are now. <laughs> um, this is actually just a man um, expressing his despairing emotion. That's, that's really what this is. Because here's where he is, right? He, he believes in his head that God is a good God who is in control and one day will make things right. But then he fears in his heart that maybe it's all a lie because he sees so much horrible things in the world. And he really is sort of like, he's like, I believe in a God of justice, but what he sees is a world of chaos in which wicked people are getting away with evil and innocent people are getting oppressed. And he's starting to think maybe it doesn't matter because in the end we all die like animals. Who knows if there's anything beyond death? Maybe what I, what I believe is actually isn't true. This is where he is. He's caught. He's trapped between his convictions about his belief in a God of justice and then his experience of what he actually encounters in all the horrors in the world. Can, 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 you, can you relate to that at all? Goodness, I can. I mean, y'all, I just want you to know, I, I believe deeply with all of my heart in a triune God of love who's made himself known to us in Jesus, who has lived and died and risen for us and is coming again to make things new. I, be, I mean, I believe that so much, I would die for that. That's how deeply I believe it. And yet... <laughs> I mean, as a pastor, I see so many hellish things, so many things that just cut people to the core, so many things that rattle. And I, and, I, and I hear about these things in the world where people are living in these hellish circumstances that I, I sometimes, I, I, I just want, I, is this really true? Is this good news that we proclaim really true? Is, can God really be good and really loving in a world like this? And you know what? It's okay. And the book of Ecclesiastes is beautiful because it gives you permission to be sometimes in a place of struggle like that. But we don't end there. We never end there as believers in Jesus because we have something that Kohelet didn't have. What do we have? We have Jesus. We have the person of Jesus. We have the good news. And so let me just end by speaking about that good news and the great truths about justice that you are invited to rest in today because of Jesus. The first is that justice has been carried out in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, the scariest thing about judgment, the scariest thing about judgment day is that God is coming not just against the wicked, <laughs> but against you. 
God, God comes to judge the earth. Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian novelist, says that the line of good and evil does not cut between nation states. It cuts right down your heart. And if you know yourself well, do you know yourself? Do you know what's in your own heart? If you know yourself well, you'll know that the seeds of like murder and hate and anger and oppression and terror and injustice, all those seeds, they're right there in your heart. And given the right nourishment, any single one of us in this room could do horrible things. That's why it's scary in Romans 2 when it says God will judge the secrets of every person's heart. And I got a lot of secrets in here that I don't want you to know, but that God sees. In his eyes, there's very little that separates us from the worst offenders. God sees all of it and no one can escape judgment. That's scary, but here's the shocking good news of the gospel. Almost every religion has a concept of the judgment day, but Christianity is the only one, the only one in which the judge himself faces judgment. Yes, God comes to judge the earth, but how does he come? In the person of Jesus who himself lives as a poor oppressed man, who himself is tried as an innocent person in a kangaroo court, who himself is nailed to a cross in an unjust act of execution. God comes to us in Jesus entering into the hebel with us as the one he willingly becomes a victim of injustice and oppression. And on the cross, Jesus Christ willingly receives within himself the whole ocean of God's wrath against humanity, the wrath that every single one of us deserve. Jesus, the judge, does not stay up on the bench. He crawls down into the dock where the prisoner is supposed to be, and he takes the cuffs, and he takes the verdict, and he takes the punishment. And that's why he can say, John 3, whoever believes in me is not condemned. Romans 8, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, quite literally, your judgment day has already happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. Your punishment has already happened. Your verdict is already out. You show up in court on the day of your trial knowing you're guilty and nobody's there because the judgment has been poured out upon the judge himself and all that's left for you is grace, mercy. That's what we receive at this table. That's such good news. And you know, the second beautiful piece of good news is this, is that the day of justice is coming when God will set things right. And the great hope of the New Testament is that the judgment of God results not in destruction of the earth, but it's renewal. That God would take everything that is broken and twisted and unjust about our world and he will make it right. And this is something not to dread. If you know Jesus, it's not to dread, but it's to, it's to celebrate and to anticipate. And he right says this, we need to remind ourselves that throughout the Bible, not least in the Psalms, God's coming judgment is a good thing. Something to be celebrated, longed for, yearned over. It causes people to shout for joy in the trees of the field, to clap their hands. And the world of systematic injustice, bullying, violence, arrogance, oppression, the thought that there might come a day when the wicked are firmly put in their place and the poor and the weak are given their due is the best news there can be. Faced with a world in rebellion, a world full of exploitation and wickedness, a good God must be a God of judgment and that good God is coming. A day is coming when God will redeem creation. He will wipe away tears. He will right wrongs. He will mend broken lives. He will destroy 
death. And sometimes I wonder, do you wonder if this is really true? But what we have in Jesus is something Kohelet didn't have. We have Jesus. We have the resurrection. We have the first sprig of spring. We have the first sign of hope. We have the the first appetizer of the great feast that comes. The promise of the final day when the light of the resurrection will spread across all of creation and dawn will forever be fixed for all of us. In the meantime, God has told us what he desires for us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with him. We don't just sit around and twiddle our thumbs and wait for Jesus to return. We go about being the people of God, being the just people of God in our city, in our world. We take action against injustice. We advocate for the vulnerable, not because we believe we can solve it, but because we know that God is at work. Life isn't meaningless and that God invites us to join with him and his great mission to liberate and redeem. You know, Kashi, her story didn't end in a brothel. A group of people committed to the way of Jesus, IJM, International Justice Mission, with the help of local officials and police, raided the brothel where Kashi and many other women were held captive, setting her and all the other women free. Um, Kashi testified for, on behalf of herself against her captors in the court of law. And she has now become a teacher. And she said in an interview I read of her, I want one thing, one thing, that what I have gone through to never happen to any other child ever again. See, she, she has become a mighty advocate for justice because even, this, this is such good news, that despite the hebel, In the world, God works, God moves, God liberates, God sets free, God renews. Let us rejoice today in a God of justice. The judge who was not only judged in our place, but now who calls us to partner with him in hastening the day when all will be made right forever. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Maranatha. Let's pray. We thank you, loving God, that you are indeed a God of justice, and yet you have become the the judge. What a God. Nobody could make this up. Thank you that at this table, we receive the fruits of your great sacrificial love for us, that receiving them, we receive your mercy and grace. We receive your judgment on our behalf. Help us now to come with open and faithful hearts ready to receive. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.